Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 200th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and before I introduce this episode's guest, please allow me a moment to acknowledge what a crazy and special thing 200 episodes is. Our first episode on which our guests were Danny Boyle, Seth Rogen and Kate Winslet promoting the film Steve Jobs was recorded at the Telluride Film Festival on September 6, 2015. And our 200th episode is posting today, Thursday, January 11th, 2018. That's a span of 858 days, or two years, four months, and five days, which means that we've been churning out a new episode every four or five days. Every single one of these episodes takes a ton of time and a ton of work to prepare, to conduct, to review, to edit, to write up, and to post. And while it can be exhausting, it is also the most rewarding thing that I and my collaborators have ever been a part of professionally. This podcast has offered me a terrific excuse to study and the opportunity and privilege to spend time with the greatest film, TV, theater, and music artists of our time, including legends like Steven Spielberg, Meryl Streep, Robert De Niro, and Jane Fonda, movie stars like Jennifer Lawrence, Will Smith, and Gal Gadot, music stars like Lady Gaga, Justin Timberlake, and Jennifer Lopez, comedy icons like Lauren Michaels, Jerry Seinfeld, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Eddie Murphy, talk show hosts like Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, Bill Maher, and Jay Leno, journalists like Dan Rather and James Lipton, iconoclasts like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Snoop Dogg, and RuPaul, and truly inspirational people like Gloria Steinem, Al Gore, and Oprah Winfrey. And yes, it must be noted, we've also had a few guests who later turned out to be very different people than we thought they were at the time we had them on, like Harvey Weinstein and Louis C.K. It could but will not go without saying that none of this would be possible without our guests or the support of a number of people whose voices you never hear on the podcast. From THR's editorial directors, formerly Janice Min and currently Matt Bellany, who have provided us with the resources and freedom to do what we need to do, Matt even suggested the title of the podcast, to the countless publicists who have made their clients available to be guests, to, above all, the artists, and they are artists, who have recorded and edited and produced every single episode. Dora Takash was with us for most of the first 100 before heading back to her native Budapest. Matt Whitehurst, a Texan turned Angeleno, has been with us for most of the second 100. And New Yorker Ryan Gabos and German Dennis Schweitzer have been there whenever the other two couldn't be. I'm hugely grateful to all of them. And last but certainly not least, I want to acknowledge you, the people who choose to listen to these conversations. We don't make our traffic numbers public, but I can tell you that our episodes have been heard millions of times by people in dozens of countries around the world, many of whom also engage with me on social media or out in public, usually in very kind ways. And I can tell you that there is nothing nicer than knowing that your work is being consumed and, at least some of the time, appreciated. So, from the bottom of my heart, I say to our listeners, thank you, thank you, thank you. And now, 
back to business. My guest today is a legendary actor of the stage and screen who made his film debut exactly 60 years ago, and today, at the age of 88, is still going strong. His big screen credits include Sidney Lumet's Stage Truck, Anthony Mann's The Fall of the Roman Empire, Robert Mulligan's Inside Daisy Clover, John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King, Bob Clark's Murder by Decree, Spike Lee's Malcolm X, Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys, Michael Mann's The Insider, Ron Howard's A Beautiful Mind, Terrence Malick's The New World, Pete Doctor's Up, Michael Hoffman's The Last Station, for which he received his first Oscar nomination at 81, Mike Mills' Beginners, for which he won his first Oscar at 82, becoming the oldest person ever to win a competitive acting Oscar, and David Fincher's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. However, he's best known to and loved by millions the world over for his work more than a half century ago as Captain Von Trapp opposite Julie Andrews Maria in Robert Wise's Best Picture Oscar-winning musical, The Sound of Music. Just a couple of months ago, he added another credit to his filmography, this one unlike any other before it, when he joined forces with Ridley Scott on All the Money in the World, filming in just nine days all of the scenes that Kevin Spacey had previously shot as J. Paul Getty, before Spacey became engulfed in a sexual misconduct scandal and the movie's future became jeopardized. For his efforts, he already has received a Best Supporting Actor Golden Globe Award nomination, and he might well receive a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination just a few weeks from now. I'm talking, of course, about the legendary Christopher Plummer. But first, I was joined at the Los Angeles offices of The Hollywood Reporter by Rachel Morrison, a 39-year-old cinematographer whose film credits include Ryan Coogler's Fruitvale Station from 2013 and Daniel Barnes's Cake from 2014, and who has received Primetime Emmy nominations for her work on Victor Bueller's 2005 TV movie Rikers High and Liz Garbus's TV doc What Happened, Miss Simone, from 2015. For her work on Dee Reese's 2017 film Mudbound, Morrison recently became the first woman ever to win the Best Cinematography New York Film Critics Circle Award or to be nominated for the American Society of Cinematographers Outstanding Achievement Award. On January 23rd, we will find out if the cinematographer's branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences has made her the first female ever to be nominated for the Best Cinematography Oscar as well. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on this historic ASC nomination. It's pretty exciting stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. I guess let's begin with, why did you decide to become a cinematographer? Ooh, the, the tough question. The big one. You know, I actually am one of those fortunate people who sort of always knew on some level. I don't know that I knew what a cinematographer was, mm-hmm. but I, you know, my mom had a camera that she would take pictures of the family with. And by seven, I was the one taking pictures of the family. <laughs> and by 10, I was, you know, making little movies with all my friends. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, and, I, and I, never, I never gravitated, you know, particularly towards directing. It was always the camera. Mm-hmm. So I sort of followed that lead. And you go off, from what I understand, to NYU and then AFI. You came out into the real world in 06. What was that time like? How does an aspiring cinematographer with great credentials like that, you know, really break into the business and I guess hear about even potential jobs? We know about actors going on auditions and things. How does it work for a cinematographer? Yeah, I mean... So I, I went to NYU for photo, actually, and okay. then sort of tacked on a, a double major at the end and came out trying to sort of take my photo portfolio around by day and my reel around by night and any <laughs> job that would hire me. And then the market tanked and, and art was like one of the first things after 9-11 to sort of dissipate. And I found myself getting sort of drawn into reality television because that was the one sort of financial way mm-hmm. to be behind the camera. 
and it wasn't what I wanted to do. So AFI was a way to sort of get back to the thing that I loved. And when I got out of AFI, I had these, you know, visions of grandeur and I was going to go straight to shooting narrative films. And of course, I had a huge amount of student debt. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first things I get called for are the things that I that I had done, which was reality. Mm -hmm. So I actually, you know, did two and a half years on, on a fun show called The Hills. The Hills, I saw that, yeah. Which, you know, the interesting thing about The Hills is that we actually got to light. So mm -hmm. I had like the sprinter van with every unit under 1200 watts that, that, you know, we were lighting for three cameras every day. And I think the weird kind of fortuitous thing is I kind of came about at a time just when DSLRs were coming out mm -hmm. and people were starting to sort of approach things with a multi-camera, mm -hmm. you know, approach. And, and so when Zal was looking for a DP for Sound of My Voice, mm -hmm. we'd gone to AFI together and we'd sort of always talked about working together and, and never had the, the chance to. And he wanted to, you know, attack it with two cameras and in a very sort of cross between, not really docu-style, but, you know, a little bit of a light for the space and then and then shoot with more than one camera and, you know, try to let the actors exist in the space. And I, and that's where my reality training actually came into play. Right. And that was your first feature? That was not my first feature, but it was my first feature that sort of got seen. Gotcha. You know, went yeah. to Sundance. Right. And, and, but, you know, I didn't really know. And, and I still don't know what to tell people who are like, how do I break into this world? I mean, it's changing fast. So when I came out of school, we were still, it was sort of the precipice between film and digital. But it used to be that, you know, if you had an opportunity to shoot film, you took it no matter what. And that was back when, you know, there wasn't such an oversaturation of content. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you made something halfway decent, it stood a good chance of being seen. Mm -hmm. Now I feel like not only are you, you know, lucky if, if something good gets seen. I mean, it's so many amazing pieces of work fall through the cracks yeah. now because there's just so much media. So, like, what I tell, you know, up-and-comers is if you don't believe in the script, like, if you don't, you know, you don't just shoot to shoot anymore. You can, anybody can pick up a camera and make something pretty. That's not really enough. Like, if you, if you want to hone your skill, do it by, you know, do it, do it on a script that you believe in right. and that you think might, you know, if you want to see it, then maybe somebody else does. It seems like some film-related professions have been very gender-specific for the entire century or so of cinema history. Directors were almost always men. Film editors were often women. We can go through the various others. But today, women account for about 51% of the American population. But according to numbers I've seen, only 4% of cinematographers. Yeah. What is that about? I don't understand it, honestly. Like, I really, to me, like, our whole industry is built around visualizing human emotion, mm -hmm. which, you know, women are known for anything. It's that we, we understand emotion. Mm -hmm. It's about empathy and, you know, channeling empathy into imagery. Like, I, I just, if anything, I think we're as if not, you know, overqualified for these positions. Yeah. So it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, it's not about people. I've heard crazy things like, you know, oh, it's, you know, has to do with hand holding the camera. And, you know, the heavier the camera, almost the better. It's not It's not about weight with a camera. It's about it being equally balanced. Like, you know, I, I come from operating and I do a lot of my own operating. Mm -hmm. And I would take a, hev a well, heavy, well-balanced camera over a lightweight mm -hmm. kind of front-heavy camera any day of the week. So, you know, an argument that has to do with the equipment or how heavy it is makes no sense. Mm -hmm. It is sort of traditionally there are a lot more men in the grip in electric and to some extent camera departments. So, you know, you are running departments who are, who are also sort of steering more male. Mm -hmm. But so what? I yeah. mean, that happens all the time, too, in other industries. I honestly don't understand why there aren't more. Do you think DVDs. it might be correlated to the number of men who direct? Because I guess the director-cinematographer relationship is as close as any on a set. And if, there are, if the vast majority of directors are men, do you think that somehow 
dissuades women from pursuing it or, or from being hired or what could that, you know, could I, that be anything with that? I, don't, I mean, I don't see why, yeah. you know what I mean? We work together in every other way and, right. you know, in every other facet of life and like, no, literally if I had an answer, I would give it to you. Right. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So as you embarked on your professional career and started going out there and meeting with people, do you think that being a woman had a positive or negative impact on your ability to land work? And did you find that once you did sign on to jobs that you were treated any differently because you're a woman? I would say that if anything, at the beginning, it probably helped. You know, we, like if you if you're the 20th person interview for a job and you're the only woman, mm-hmm. then you get to stand out in the room. And, you know, I think in some ways being the exception of the rule gave me a leg up. Mm-hmm. I think five years ago when I was sort of when I'd done three or four, maybe five indie features that it had a relative amount of success and still wasn't getting the studio calls. That was sort of the first time where I was like, wait, something feels a little off here. Like, I, I you know, I've, I'm seeing my male peers who have had one film come out of Sundance and they're doing a $50 million movie. Mm-hmm. Like, where are those phone calls? Mm-hmm. That was the only time I noticed any kind of sort of gender inequity for, for myself. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's changing, actually. I really do think in the, in the past couple of years, you know, there is a lot of momentum and attention to the problem and all of these things. And I'm starting to see women who have one, you know, or two like successful Sundance films getting calls for bigger things. So I think that's amazing. And I think that's a real sign that things are changing. But I don't know. I never, I really, thankfully, never sort of saw it as a disadvantage, mm-hmm. never felt treated, you know, differently or as anything, you know, less than. I just sort of, you know, put my head up and kept doing the work, yeah. you know, and, and it all sort of, I, I found it quite seamless, actually. So one of your first movies that got a really big audience i think it's fair to say would have been for Vale station which was a big hit at sundance and then went to Cannes, and then became a part of the awards conversation and i i want to ask you about that one because it seems like that might be another where your background in documentary style like reality stuff would have been useful right i think it was a big part of the reason ryan hired me actually Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i came from photojournalism like when i did photography it wasn't still life it wasn't fashion it was photojournalism Mm -hmm. if i had gone the photo route i was actually interested in in conflict photography Mm -hmm. and i think ryan you know knew for this film in particular he wanted it to have the feel of a doc you know Mm -hmm. a, a very single camera experiential look he didn't want it to feel stylized. He wanted the lighting to feel authentic. And so I definitely think that played into me getting hired for that film. And after that and and since then, it seems like you've certainly had maybe more ability to pick and choose what you do. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about that was that even with something like A Year Later with Cake, which is this indie movie that starred Jennifer Aniston, who got a lot of attention for her performance, it wasn't like, thank God I have a job opportunity to do something with in a movie starring Jennifer Aniston. But, you know, you can assert your own feelings there, which are that I don't want to light a movie star vehicle. I want to do a gritty indie movie. So just assure me that what I'm signing on to is not going to change when we get to the set. Right? And that's literally the conversation I had. Mm-hmm. You know, Daniel Barnes, thankfully, had the exact same approach as I did, which is if we have to chase Jennifer Aniston around with the beauty light, this isn't the movie <laughs> we're trying to make. Right. And everything that his conversations with her early on had sort of led him to believe that she was willing to take this, you know, leap with us. But of course, you never know till the first day mm-hmm. of set. And, you know, her team was sort of like, well, let's tiptoe, you know, let's do it a little, little at a time. And she just jumped like head in. It was mm-hmm. really, I feel so grateful and honored that she was willing to sort of go there with mm-hmm. us. 
you know, I feel fortunate that I, I feel like, and then with Kerry Washington and confirmation, like I sort of get to be the person who takes these beautiful, glamorous movie stars and light them as real people, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is a cool, yeah. I think that's a cool place to be. I mean, I, I, I really believe in lighting for character and drama and not for beauty. Yeah. I mean, unless it's that movie, which right. I probably wouldn't sign You wouldn't do, do. Yeah. 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 Generally speaking, should or shouldn't an audience member notice great cinematography? I think they shouldn't. I mean, there there are a few exceptions when it's sort of built into the world. I mean, sci-fi is a perfect example of that, where you are getting the world itself is this, you know, other other world, mm. other, you know, you get to sort of play and do these things that aren't something that we're associate with anything really. Mm. So in that case, you can sort of be beautiful and weird and, and it doesn't feel like a break from the mm. narrative. But I think in anything that's grounded in a world that we know, when it starts to feel super stylized, at least for me, it yeah. just pulls me right out of the seat. So, you know, I, I really believe in a understated form of cinematography being the thing that serves the story best, at least in, in films that are that are grounded in, you know, reality. Right. So let's pick up the story in, I believe, the summer of 2016 when you and a group of people wind up in the summer oh in New Orleans <laughs> yeah. Yeah. just schwitzing as yeah. we say Lots of um, and I, from what I understand I mean we had Mary J Blige here for an episode recently mosquitoes and mud and in a lot of ways the making of Mudbound sounds like a extremely unpleasant experience but yet it resulted in this movie that people are loving so I guess let's just start with how did you first hear about Mudbound and what appealed to you about it I think that Dee actually called me directly. We we'd known each other loosely, like through the indie channels, and and had a lot of mutual respect for each other and and one another's work. And you know, she told me about this project and said, "I think you'd be a great fit for it." And I read it and was incredibly moved. I mean, it's it's very much the kind of thing that I look for, which is a narrative that has a message and that feels timely and feels. I, I think our our world is so messed up right now that. I don't know if I even believe in, in in pure entertainment for entertainment's sake. I mean, even I think even Black Panther has a message. Mm-hmm. So I try to do things that have something to say. And so this obviously was very much that. And, you know, I knew from Dee's past work that she was somebody that, you know, could take it, for example, a short film like Pariah yeah. and turn it into a feature, which is such an incredible, you know, thing to pull off. So I was excited to work with her. And then, you know, Carrie Mulligan, all these people that I think do great work. And... It was challenging. I mean, I, I liked the idea of, you know, how do you tell this story that's six different narratives and try to kind of weave it into one. But when we set out to shoot it, it was supposed to be January, which is a very, yes. very different thing in <laughs> New Orleans than, you know, we, we ended up shooting it in an hour outside of New Orleans for Mississippi. But yeah, the South and, and January is very different than July. Right. And it was it was hell. I mean, it really was. But I think in some ways you really do feel like, in living it, I mean, it, it definitely, I think, enhanced the, the actors' performances and the sweat was real, the discomfort was real. And for us, you know, it presented all kinds of technical challenges, you know, lots of rain deflectors and fogging of lenses and mud and, you know, condors stuck in the mud and camera trucks stuck in the mud. And uh, it was it was challenging. But I, in some ways, I, you, you sort of feel that on the on, in the film, I think. Yeah. And you brought a lot of visual references to this project. Maybe you can share how that works like you had your idea of what it should look like i'm sure d had hers how does it work when you have to meet in the middle somewhere i assume it was actually a very sort of natural melding of the two we didn't look at any narrative references which wasn't a coincidence i think it just i mean it neither of us brought those and which was liberating in a way but 
Dee brought a lot of fine art to the table. She brought portrait artist named Whitfield Lavelle, who had done this amazing portrait work on, on wood, which was, I think, a representation of the Jackson family and sort of these warm, earthy tones. And she had brought Robert Frank the Americans and kind of just a look at isolation versus sort of claustrophobia and the idea of, you know, the American dream versus the American reality and, and all of these sort of the things that unify us and the things that separate us. I went straight to the Farm Security Administration, which was actually the thing that got me into photography in the first place. So, you know, legends like Dorothea Lange and Gordon Parks and, you know, Walker Evans are the ones that most people know, but mm-hmm. Arthur Rothstein, Ben Sean, there's just so many, so many yeah. more. And I bought a stack of books like 15 high and, <laughs> and we kind of just delved in. Wow. And the main thing for me was just finding a way to, to sort of shoot period without it feeling like we hit the tea stain button. Or, well, because those it. are mostly, if I were black correct, and white. black and yeah. white, right? Yeah. So how does that apply to this? It was much more of a look at compositional elements and design elements and what we liked instead of what we gravitated to. I think you can see it in like the scene with um, Ronzel meeting Jamie McCallan for the first time and, and the, the sort of looky-loos on the porch. I mean, you see so many of those sort of iconic shots of, you know, these guys in overalls kind of, you know, just killing time because that there was not a whole lot else to do at the time and then just the Jim Crow South and what that was like you know in the 1940s and 50s and I think at the time we thought it was timeless I think we've realized that it's just timely and Mm -hmm. that's really depressing but you know my into the color of it was actually I was in Atlanta shooting at the time when when I first started talking to Dee and there was an exhibit at the High Museum of Gordon Parks's a segregation story for Time Life magazine and it was you know it was all the outtakes of 50 images and the color in that was just, I saw it and I was like, this is it. Because what he had done is, you know, there's there was a bit of a muted palette, a bit of pastel colors, but the blacks were still rich. It wasn't a milked out sort of, this sort of trendy, milky, milky black look that I feel like is gets, you know, overused. But also for me, like contrast, contrast is, is the stakes. It's a mirror of the stakes and, and you need somewhere to go. And so black, like rich blacks is everything. So I was trying to figure out how to do, how to do a period film, but retain a black black yeah. and that was sort of it for me from what i understand fruitvale was shot on film cake was shot on digital and i believe you guys originally planned to shoot mudbound on film um, yeah so how did it end up being on digital you know i it's still like i feel it's almost like sacrilegious to not shoot that movie on film to me because everything all of the references everything is just so analog about about the south in the 40s and, you know, both Dee and I had had every intention of shooting on film, but we saw our shooting schedule, which already was unrealistic. I don't know how we made it. It was kind of a miracle that <laughs> we made it. 28 days? Yeah, it was, I think it was 20, I, I, I've heard 28 or 29. Mm-hmm. It was somewhere in there for the principal photography and then two days in Hungary with just Dee and I and a local crew. And David Bomba, our production editor, went up ahead. And, you know, our producers were kind enough not to rule out film, but to actually get, you know, crunch the numbers and sort of say, okay, this is what it would mean. Mm-hmm. And in our case, where what it came down to was losing two shooting days. And, you know, Fruitvale was a similar conversation, and Ryan and I decided to make the sacrifice mm-hmm. that we felt like we really needed that sort of tangible, visible grain, something that felt like a documentary. Like, it, it we were like, okay, that's, that's the right call. Uh, you know, and I don't know if it was shooting days or a combination of shooting days and shaving off, you know, one department member <laughs> from every, you know, from every department. Right. But... In this case, I think we just looked at that schedule and we're like, I don't think we can do it. And at the same time, before ruling it out, I, I shot a test. And I and in that test, you know, I was not trying to like, let's let's sell film and slam digital, which I might do in another scenario <laughs> where I'm really trying to push for film. Right. I, w- I was actually interested in how close can we get the digital to look like film. 
And so I did, you know, a bunch of things. And I don't know if the audience is remotely. Yeah, no. What, what are in, the secrets? In, in camera, you know, I rated a, a much higher ASA than the native rating. The camera just introduced a little bit of digital noise, mm-hmm. but not so much to like, we weren't trying to introduce the grain in the camera, right. but just sort of the suggestion of grain. And then in post, we did we did a full, emu, you know, grain emulation pass. And, you know, I had my, my DI colorist, Daly's colorist, trying to match literally trying to match the digital to the film and mm-hmm. see how close we could get. And we got pretty close, wow. you know, and I think when D saw that first test and we were faced with losing two days or not, it was just, okay, we have to do this digitally. Right. You have said in another interview, quote, I really believe in using natural light, but often it takes a lot of lighting to make something look natural. So maybe you can explain for folks who aren't really immersed in this stuff, why is natural light ideal and how did that apply to this particular project? I think the really believing in using natural light might be a combination of I believe in in the light feeling authentic, mm-hmm. you know, and feeling natural as opposed to just using natural light. And maybe I mean I've certainly said nothing beats you know natural light at the right time of day. I mean we're never going to be able to make magic hour with artificial light. Mm-hmm. So you know na- like if I if there's a scene that's short enough that can be shot with natural light alone by all means, like that's usually the best way to achieve it. When you have a two page scene, you can't, you know, that's not the kind of thing that you can just count on the sun staying in the same place. Mm -hmm. So you end up having a light. But on this film, I I found it much more challenging than usual because among other things, the plantation homes had no glass window panes. So normally you would ND the window to sort of maintain an exposure from the inside to the out. And we had a lot of, you know, I mean, they're also tiny with windows and doors everywhere. So you're trying to kind of maintain a, a, a latitude or hold a latitude between the interiors and the exteriors, which meant pumping light into the interiors. But, you know, we had low ceilings. We had, it was just challenging. Mm-hmm. It was like, I worked with David Bombard, an incredible production designer to, you know, he cut a couple holes for me in the ceilings. And I think we introduced a new door where there wasn't one. And, and then, you know, it's just outside of every frame was a lot of 18 K. Well, we didn't actually have a lot. We think we had two 18 Ks, but you know, had all of our big guns right. pushing in from off screen windows and things like that, just to bring up the ambient and the interior. Wow. And then outside, it was just finding the balance between, you know, the harsh that really works and the harsh that's just not fair to the actors. <laughs> so you know, that right. was mostly grip work, but you know, finding overheads like half soft frost is, is an example. It's almost like a shower curtain material, which just takes a little bit of the edge out of the sun without, taking the sun out completely and making it beautiful. One of the fascinating things about Mudbound, which you referenced earlier, is the fact that there are so many different narrators and narratives. I mean, it's really unusual to have six, I think. How does that impact your work as the cinematographer in terms of point of view and all these things that maybe we take for granted? I think the biggest challenge was to figure out whose story it was in each scene. When you have six main characters as opposed to one that's driving, you know, that's driving the movie forward, then you literally have to sort of evaluate each scene and say, okay, whose subjective point of view is it in this moment? So that was one of the things. And the other was finding a way to give each character their own sort of motif, but still having the peace feel of a whole. So And when you you say give each character a motif, does that mean sort of like a color scheme or different things with that? Yeah, you know something like that whether it's that or you know minimizing one character in the frame and maximizing another or you know looking at what sort of the emotional through line is Mm -hmm. and kind of trying to mirror that in some way it's always it's always for me anyway it's always trying to be a subtle subconscious sort of motif it's not like let's hit people on the head with it and in terms of you know unifying it within the narrative it wasn't like 
traffic where we were wanting to get, you know, one's yellow and one's blue. Right, right, like it right. was it was finding something that still very much felt of a whole. And things like blocking is that that's always a part of the cinematographer and director uh, like a joint decision or how does that work? I think it depends on it depends on the director. I wouldn't describe this movie as that. I think Dee really wanted to work with the actors to figure out the blocking and then she would sort of turn to me to make sure that what she had figured out would work in mm-hmm. some way. So it wasn't blocking for a character motif. It was just knowing that, you know, we were going to approach it in a certain way. Right. Do you have a favorite shot or sequence from Mudbound, just from a visual standpoint? Is there something that you're particularly pleased with how it came out? And again, I understand that, you know, what you're saying is to the average audience member, this this kind of thing should maybe not be so striking that it, it actually is noticeable. But for you, what are you most pleased with? I mean... Maybe the opening scene, which was, it looks so simple, but it was actually probably the hardest one to achieve because, you know, you just don't get continuity. It doesn't exist in the South in the summer. Like you can't, you know, we needed wide rain sequences where we only had one rain tower. So that wasn't going to work. So we had this sort of, you know, crazy idea of a reverse cover set where when we knew it was going to rain, which it thankfully or for better or for worse anyway, it rains almost every day there. Mm-hmm. You know, we would be ready to grab our wides, but it doesn't rain f- for very long. The rain is really just a relief mm-hmm. of the pressure buildup, and then 20 minutes later, it's sunny again. Mm-hmm. So that scene was really shot over a number of different days with, you know, the reverse cover set for the wides, and then for the, you know, mediums, we built a full sort of black arena outside and then had to put the rain tower inside of it and backlight the rain and, you know, lightning effects and all of these things. Like if you'd looked outside of our sort of man-made set, it was like sunny. Um, <laughs> so I'm proud that that scene worked because that was definitely the one that sort of kept me up at night. Wow. Well, now Mudbound was, I guess, made without a distributor, as is often the case, but it was acquired, I think, out of Sundance by Netflix. In other words, you shot it, assuming I, I would think that it would be seen on, mostly yeah. on a big screen. Yeah. And instead, the vast majority of people who see it will now see it on the small screen. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's been challenging. I mean, on the one hand, I'm incredibly grateful. You know, Netflix was like our our saviors. They came in when no one else wanted to sort of pay the price tag for the film. And, you know, nobody else believed that they would find an audience. And they're the reason why it's getting seen at all. So I'm incredibly grateful to them for that. But it wasn't what I, you know, I hadn't had a small screen in mind for it. And what I realized is I think it, it it holds up on the small screen. It's not actually about the size of the screen so much as whether people's home theaters are calibrated. Right. Because the thing that I, I shot for the best case scenario, which is, you know, a perfectly calibrated theatrical experience. And I went dark with it. Like I, I was really on the edge of the night scenes with darker skin. It was like in a, in a perfect environment, I've never been more proud of my work. But in a less than perfect environment, I'm mortified. Mm-hmm. And that's that was more the the learning experience. It wasn't so much the smaller big of it, but it's the, you know, if you if you go dark, you have to realize that some people's TV screens are gonna be too dark or too milky or too whatever. And you had a funny comment I saw somewhere else, which is that, you know, if you have to choose between doing something that you thought would be big but is ends up being small, that is preferable to the alternative. Yes, yes, <laughs> I am. Um, I mean, it was just the one premiere of confirmation, but you know, I shot that knowing it was for for HBO, right. and I mixed format. I, I mixed formats in this too, but in a different way. But I mixed anamorphic and spherical, and we were center cropping the the, the, the anamorphic and in, in confirmation, which softens the image, you know, considerably. Mm-hmm. So then, when I saw it, you know, 
like at in the a pre- premiere, at the premiere yeah. on a gigantic screen. I was just like, <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, better to shoot big and then go small than the other way around. I want to wind down by just looking ahead to the future for you. The Fruitvale marked the beginning of this relationship with Ryan Coogler, which then continued on the Black Panther, which is out, I believe, in March. February. February. Out it's, in February. It's around the corner. Wow. Yeah. Talk about the the massively different scales and how I don't think you'd ever done anything this oh, big. No, not even close. Not even close. Yeah. And so you had a lot more toys, I would assume, to sure. play with. But what was your experience in contrast with what you had gone through together on Fruitvale? You know, the nice thing about Ryan is he's Ryan. Like he he made it feel like we were just making a massive Fruitvale. You know, he's very hands-on with everybody. He's very, he doesn't, like, if it was up to him, we would have done every single shot in that movie ourselves, which is not normally how a Marvel film works. (laughs) But we did, you know, we did most of our own action sequences. We did a lot of the second, you know, there wasn't a a massive second unit, which there usually is on these films. You still, I think, feel his and and my fingerprint throughout the film, which is really Mm -hmm. refreshing. You know, the VFX component was something that was completely new to me. It was totally How does that work? Because some of what we're going to end up seeing was not, shot yeah like this is a new territory right for you it is for me yes absolutely you know it's at the end of the day I think what I realized I mean look I was terrified going into it because it wasn't anything that I had a background in Mm -hmm. but I quickly realized it's sort of a combination of communication and common sense the communication is crucial so that you have a plan from production design you know early on in prep all the way through to post and the VFX component so that, you know, whatever you're dreaming of for your backgrounds or your extensions or whatever, whatever my lighting was being motivated by has to hold through to the end or else suddenly the lighting doesn't make sense. So that's just the communication, you know, on that level is critical. And also, I mean, it's much bigger crew. You know, you're running multiple cameras at a time, multiple units at a time. So communication sort of not just to my one or two cameras that are standing there right with me, but, you know, everybody else is that was, a you know, a big change. But then the common sense of it is just, you know, I, I think while different VFX films approach their VFX differently, it all just comes down to, okay, what's, what's, what makes the most sense in this, in this scenario for mm-hmm. this thing that we're, you know, lighting in the present or in the, you know, in the real and then marrying to something that isn't there. Mm. I, I don't know. I found it kind of, Refreshing to be challenged again. I mean, that's sort of what I was saying about the one thing about not going to a studio film and doing so many indies in a row is I was putting out a lot of the same fires. So I was just excited to put out some new fires. And you would do it again? Yeah, absolutely. I think I need a a palate cleanser. I'm such a sort of character drama girl that like probably a few more, you know, back to the live action Mm -hmm. realm. But then, you know, who knows, in a year or two, I might be ready to go right back to it. Back in 2014, you made your directorial debut on John Ridley's American Crime TV program for ABC. How did that come about? And is directing sort of an ultimate goal? I believe quite a few filmmakers from your Haskell Wexlers and Gordon Willis's and on and on and on, they started as DPs and then did that same trajectory. Is that Was that a one-off or is that something you want to do? So I have the most unusual story in terms of like getting into directing because there are plenty of people who that's all they've ever wanted to do and plenty of DPs who after doing, you know, five seasons of the same show say I'll only do a sixth if I can direct. Mm -hmm. I had never thought like thought that that was the direction I would go. And John Ridley and I had had just a really, you know, kind of connected conversation at the Indie Spirit Awards when he was developing American Crime and he was influenced by the look of Fruitvale and we just talked and 
I literally, or my, my agents got a call out of the blue saying, you know, hey, this is John Ridley, or maybe it, it was his producers, right. but, you know, we think Rachel would be really great to direct an episode of American Crime. Is that something she's any interest in? And, you know, fortunately, I had done a few commercials as a director DP, so I had something I could show. But that was kind of, that was before Panther, that was before Mudbound, that, w- that was right where I was like, okay, I can't do another $3 million indie movie, <laughs> and I just want to be challenged. Right. And so I was like, this, that sounds like a great challenge, so why not? And I did it, and it went great, and I did another, and it went great. And then suddenly I had this episodic, t- I mean, it sort of kind of coincided with people looking up, you know, suddenly we need we need more females in right, the industry, and right. sort of trying to plug holes with, with <laughs> you know, female DPs, female right. script supervisors, whatever, right. but... I, I could have had this like bustling episodic television directing career, which was not anything I'd ever set out to do per se. And it wasn't that I wasn't interested in it, but I don't think I was ready to close the cinematography chapter. And the thing that I realized is they booked so far in advance that I, you know, I'd booked a couple shows five months out and then Rick called me to do confirmation. And I was like, I really want to shoot mm-hmm. that. Like this is a director I've worked with before. And so I kind of had to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to sort of put that on the back burner. Cause I felt like I wasn't, you know, I wasn't ready to close the mm-hmm. cinematography chapter. And it's not that I'm ready to close it now, but what I have suddenly realized is the target I was chasing my entire career were big dramas. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I finally have gotten, I literally feel like I just arrived where the target is five feet away and it's ghosted. It's gone to television. Like they don't make the Shawshank Redemptions of of the Mm -hmm. world anymore where, Mm -hmm. you know, 80 million, whatever the modern equivalent of an $80 million drama is something where you do get some time and you get to scratch that itch and you get toys and you also can feed a family. And, you know, now that's all television, which for me as a DP, I mean, watching, like, I think I have all the respect in the world for television and I, you know, would probably go back into directing television, but as a DP doing 14 episodes of the same look feels like an office job. Like everything I love about what I do is that I get to, you know, every, every, to shake it up every three Mm -hmm. months, every six months, you know, and I get to sort of find new looks for things. And so I'm suddenly at this point in my career where I'm like, well, I don't, I, my target's gone. Like I need to reimagine something for myself. And that's where, yeah, I, I might be interested in directing, but I would never want to close the shooting chapter either because I love it so much. So the question is, you know, can you really be a multi-hyphenate or is that right. the like, you know, I, I, again, it's like, I don't want to go down the, the master of all trades, jack of none route. So <laughs> it's uh, figuring out whether I can direct and get good at that, but but still shoot as well. Very interesting. Well, the last question is one that I think you've probably been hearing a lot lately, and I I hope you don't mind me asking. On January 23rd, there is a very real possibility that you will become the first female ever nominated for the Best Cinematography Oscar. And I just wonder if that were to happen, is that something that would mean a lot to you? Are are you kidding? Yeah. I mean, I look, I, I keep trying to sort of avoid that question because I don't want to, I don't want to get my hopes up. Mm -hmm. You know, the more and more real it became, the more I kept trying to kind of squash it Mm -hmm. so that, so that I can be happily surprised and not find myself in a place where I'm now expecting it or, or or hoping so much that when I, when I hear otherwise I'm, I'm really gutted. So I'm just trying to like tell myself that it's still such an outside chance, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the dream come true. I mean, really, I wasn't somebody who was chasing the director dream. I've always wanted to be a DP and, you know, the ASC awards is almost like the Oscars for me because it means that my peers recognize my work and, and my heroes really like the ASC is sort of a combination of, mm-hmm. you know, those are all, all the people that I've looked up to for so long. So just the fact that they validated it kind of is, is like an Oscar nomination for me, but yeah, I mean, that would be the dream come true. <laughs> well, I, I wish you luck and I thank you so much for doing this. Thank Appreciate you so it. much.
And now for my interview with Christopher Plummer. Over the course of our conversation at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in Beverly Hills, where Plummer was staying while in town from Florida for the Golden Globes, the 88-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how a young man from a privileged family wound up working in the theater, and why he felt, at least at the time, that being angry and drunk were essential parts of the job, why he fell in love with the works of Shakespeare and played virtually all of the Shakespearean roles on the stage, what led to him acting for the screen, first on TV back when it was live and then in the movies, and what the main differences are between acting for a live audience and acting for a camera, why he has conflicted feelings about The Sound of Music, which he has at various times referred to as The Sound of Mucus and S&M, where reshooting in just nine days all of the scenes that Kevin Spacey had previously shot for all the money in the world ranks on his list of strange and challenging experiences, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Plummer, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you. So we always begin at the very beginning. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? <laughs> That's a surprise one. Well, I grew up in the province of Quebec in Montreal. My great-grandfather was prime minister of Canada. When he's the, he was the third prime minister, actually, of, in the country, Sir John Abbott. So I grew up in a kind of rarefied... Yeah. existence and it was absolutely lovely actually it was Montreal when I grew up in the in the 30s was a very sophisticated European town mm-hmm. and about the only the only European fitting town in the whole of North America mm-hmm. I mean it beat New York <laughs> of course now everything's changed because it's now the French have claimed it as they indeed should because it was French before it was English and that's how I grew up there was I, I grew up on the hill skiing and I, I I saw thousands and thousands of wonderful cabaret performances because we attracted, the city attracted entertainers from all over the world, Europe particularly. And I grew up bilingually, even started acting in French on the radio. <laughs> well, one thing, though, that I was interested to learn prepping for this was that even before acting, music was, uh, yeah. was your main interest, right? Yes, I, I'd heard Rachmaninoff play when I was 14. Can you believe that I actually saw the great man? Because he then was probably the greatest pianist in the world. And I was so astounded by his performance and his recordings later on when I played them. And I loved the way he, he was so witty. He was so facile. His technique was astounding. And he could also be subtle and quiet, and his touch was expert. And that's what seduced me into... Uh, into wanting to play the piano, like Rachmaninoff, I, I didn't quite make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, at a certain point, it really was, in fact, the loneliness of what it takes to be a pianist that drove you to the acting side, right? Yes, absolutely. It's not not exactly a gregarious profession. <laughs> Arthur Rubinstein was pretty gregarious yeah. in his life, but very few. And the theater posed a kind of wonderful camaraderie. And a connection with the audience that you don't have when you play the piano in front of an audience. So where were you first exposed to the theater? Was that in school? In school, yeah, yeah, high school. Yeah, I played Darcy in Pride and Prejudice. That was my first high school play. And I got a wonderful review from the main critic of the Gazette, 
So I thought I was a star. I didn't have to. <laughs> I didn't really have to work, did I? <laughs> well, I wondered also. Did you go to the movies as a kid? Yeah. So was the dream as you got into acting ultimately to be a great theater man or a great no, film star? A, a great theater man. Yeah. I was. In, I loved the movies. I was. I was there all the time. Yeah. I, but to take the profession seriously, one had to be a stage actor, and indeed, all the best. Some of the best screen actors, most of them, are from the stage. How did your parents feel when it became clear that you were on a trajectory to do this for a living? Well, I think they all thought, oh, God. <laughs> but my mother was very sympathetic. She was so supportive. She took me to everything anyway. She, she took me to the ballet and the symphony orchestras and operas. And, oh, God, she was marvelous. She, she gave me that, all that sort of cultural stuff that I think is so important. Yeah. One of the films that I understand you really liked as a as a young person was Henry V with Olivier. Yes. And he played him in a certain way for wartime. You then played him years later in a different way. You've described it as sort of the angry young man Well, it approach. was. It wasn't because, I mean, the theater everywhere had changed with the emergence of John Osborne and Arnold Wesker and all the, the, the kitchen sink writers. For the better, actually. There was some marvelous stuff going on. And, and realism became much more part of the British acting syndrome. Yeah, I, I sort of mixed the two when I played Henry. I, half, half the performance was the trumpet calls, because you have to use those in those marvelous speeches. And the other was kind of really a modern young man who was confused, who, who didn't know how to assume responsibility. Well, part of the reason I bring this up, though, is that my sense from, from things you've said in the past is that you feel you actually have to be an angry young man to be a very good actor. Is that true? Why would that be? Well, I think the, the best actors in the world have the great rage. I remember James Eggett, who was a, a fantastic critic, wrote about the, the great rage a lot. And if you possessed it, then you could frighten the audience. So what were you angry was. about? Well, I, I, I shouldn't have been angry about anything. I was so bloody spoiled. <laughs> right, right. But uh, I, oh, we found something. I, <laughs> I drank a lot, so that made me angry well, in that, proper sense. That's exactly where I wanted to go next because I think it's unbelievable. I always wanted to go there with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, but can you explain to me, because this was a generation of people who drank a lot. There yeah. A lot of your closest friends and contemporaries, I know Jason Robards, Richard Burden, Peter O'Toole, You've said, you know, you've put it more blunt than I would, that you were a drunk for a period of time. And I wonder, did that group of people, that era of people, do that because it was rebellious or because they thought it made them looser on the stage? Or, or what was yeah, that about? I think, I think both. And I think there was a sort of kind of conceit among good stage actors in those days, a snobbishness, that to be a really marvelous stage actor, you should be able to drink yourself blind and still play Hamlet at the matinee. Right. Uh, and if you could do that, then you were a man, my son. Well, you know? and in fact, you one of your great performances was as John Barrymore. And John Barrymore, if I remember, gave a performance completely plastered and then got an unbelievable review. It's kind of, you know, people say, oh, he's doing such interesting things, when in fact... He, well, he went, in that particular instance, that's absolutely true. He, he stopped for a moment because he was plots, <laughs> and went to the middle of in the middle of a soliloquy, and went to the back of the stage, and leaned over the parapet, and was violently sick, 
but the audience didn't see it because he had his back to them. Right. He just leaned over in a kind of <laughs> <laughs> and vomited into the wings and then came back and finished the speech. And of course the critics said, oh my God, that, that original kind of idea he suddenly had was so moving and touching. Well, that probably put critics in a certain context for you going forward. So. That's, that's right. <laughs> now, this may sound a bit naive, but I want to ask you because... You, like many of the best theater actors, have done a lot of Shakespeare over the years. What is it for an actor that makes doing Shakespeare so desirable and rewarding? Is it just because everybody says that's what you're supposed to do, or is there really something oh, that's great well, about first it? First of all, he's the greatest, in my view, the greatest writer. I mean, he grew up, Shakespeare, in, a, in an atmosphere of great writing. Good Lord, all those Elizabethan writers from Ben Jonson on all the way down the line were fantastic but they somehow lacked his simplicity. And that's when then the argument of, did Shakespeare really write right. those plays? Right. Certainly he must have been the big five, because there's a similarity of realism and, and simplicity in those that, that stand apart from even the rest of his Which are his the work. big five? Hamlet? Well, Hamlet, Macbeth, and Lear, yes. Iago, Othello. Now you've five. done all of them? Yeah, except Othello. I've never played Othello. Is there a reason, or do you want to? Well, no. I mean, it is. It belongs to the uh, to a black actor. Yeah. It is. Let's face it. Yeah. Even though many whites have played, played, mm-hmm. uh, but I wouldn't mind giving it a go. I, I even was cheeky enough one night to go up to Lawrence Fishburne and say, "Listen, would you like to do a production where I play Othello and you play Iago?" What did he say? So, that's, that's I think he was absolutely infuriated. <laughs> He didn't say anything. He <laughs> stared at me with terrible cold eyes. and Oh, God. Because he's a, a, a wonderful classical actor, yes. Lawrence Fishburne. Yes. And I thought that might be rather original and yeah. exciting. <laughs> to answer your question, yes. and I must because um, Shakespeare makes us, it brings up our standard considerably if we can play that, if we can play, if we can do justice to the verse and show the audience that this is poetry, and not make it try to, so many actors try to make it sound contemporary and that's when they get into trouble because it sounds more contemporary if you give the poetry its due that's our challenge and my lord there's such, such wonderful characters i mean who could write another king lear i mean please was there one that you enjoyed playing the most of his characters well i, I loved henry v actually i loved it because it was a, such an exciting time for me and the production I, I did when I was 26, we had the French actors from Quebec playing the French court. So they played it in French. Wow. So we had the two languages on the stage. It was an absolutely, we should have brought that to Broadway. It was so nuts not to do that. Amazing. Yeah. Well, when television first came along, it was live, and you wound up a part of it. And I wonder, because it was live, did it feel essentially like film theater? <laughs> well, Yes, it felt like all the sort of most disastrous things that happened (laughs) (laughs) on the stage every day. (laughs) Did you enjoy the living on the the tightrope aspect of it? Well, I I did in a way because it it gave us a spontaneity that we hardly expected, actually. And the best writers of the time were writing for television, this new medium. Would that we had them now. Yeah, I mean, Chayefsky, Horton Foote, Chayefsky, yeah. tons of terrific writing. They, they, instead of writing for the screen, they were writing for TV. I've read these great stories from 
people like Arthur Penn and others that yes. a camera would bump into another camera and you just have to keep going or an actor would go up on his lines and you just have to keep moving. Did you have any particularly memorable experiences in live TV? Yes, I was playing in a piece called Meierling. It was about the crown prince and his love affair with Maria Vecera, who was played in this instance by uh, Vivica Linforth, was her name. Okay. She was so beautiful. And they have the love tryst, you know, and, the, and their suicide, their mu mutual suicide takes place in the lodge in the country. And the scene is she's waiting for me, she's pacing up and down in the room, and, and I suddenly... I'm supposed to appear. Well, well, I couldn't find the door or anywhere where I could get in. It was it was on the air. I mean, the, right. And it was black backstage where there's no floor walker to show me the the way. And I could I could sort of sense that poor Vivica was pacing up and down, up and down, saying, well, "I'm wondering what the hell." I want. And there's silence right. on the television. Deafening. Yeah. And finally, I saw a little chink, and there I was in all my medals, <laughs> and I grabbed the chance, and I ducked, and I came through, and I landed in the room. Well, I'd come through the fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> That's live TV for you. There. Oh, God, and that was just one of many. That's great. Well, what are the biggest differences for an actor between acting in the theater and acting in front of cameras generally, whether it's live or not? Is there? Do you change what you do? Well, yes, you just have to use part of yourself more intimately than than you would on the stage because you have to be heard in the theater so that you have to project but you also have to project in such a way that it is real it isn't forced it's difficult but that's the difficulty of the theater and that's the, that's a great challenge same thing in movies i just got more intimate when the time came but you should be able to do exactly what you do on stage on screen do you, you shouldn't feel be afraid do you feel more at home in one medium versus the other? Not anymore. I always felt more at home in the, on stage because I've had such a long stage career. But now, no. I, now I'm pretty much relaxed in front of a camera, and I feel free. It's actually freed me now. So they're, they're equal. Wow. So what led to your debut in on the big screen. I understand that David O. Selznick and others had pursued you, yes. but what finally got you to go there at a time when I think a lot of theater actors thought films were a little bit beneath them? Yes, that terrible snobbish thing. <laughs> and then you so suddenly thought of all the money and you thought, oh, please, what are you talking about, you fool? We quickly grew out of that, yeah. I think, that right. a, lot, a lot of us. Uh, now, Sidney Lumet gave me my first movie because I'd done some work with him in New York, and he gave me, uh, he asked me to, to come and do a play called Stage Struck, he called it, a remake of Morning Glory, mm -hmm. which had Catherine Hepburn. Yeah. And, and it wasn't a particularly exciting script, except I met Hank Fonda and became very fond of Henry Fonda, mm -hmm. and Herbert Marshall, who was such a class act, and Joan Greenwood and Susan Strasberg. And, so that was my, that was 1958, I think. Wow. So that was my first encounter with a major film. You have said that it took quite a while for you to feel that you were doing a good job in films. Why was that? Well, I, I was a little bit theatrical, I, I thought, you know, because that spilled over from the stage. But I quickly remedied that. I you just have to look at it myself to say, oh, my God. But why don't you just whisper that line instead of shouting at you, <laughs> fool? So 
I, I learned a lot by, by watching. What do you regard as your first screen role that you were happy with? I think that people really responded to you as the emperor in, in Anthony Mann's The Fall of the Roman Empire in 65. Well, it was and sort of fun, because I could use the theatricality that, that I was trying to play down, but I could use it to its fullest. Right. Uh, that was fun to do, yes. But I didn't really begin to enjoy the sort of real depth of the screen until I did John Huston's The Man Who Would Be King. Yeah. And I was no longer a sort of leading man. I was a kind of supporting actor, uh, character actor. Yeah. And the minute I became a character actor, the parts grew much more interesting. And you were happier because you didn't have to worry about vanity or anything no, like that, right? I, which I constantly was looking at my profile in the, <laughs> in the early days. And no, it was wonderful. You could be free. You could change your appearance and do all sorts of things, which I continued to, to do to this bloody day. <laughs> now, in between those two films, which were a decade apart, in between The Fall of the Roman Empire and The Man Who Would Be King, was a little movie called The Sound of Music. And <laughs> I have to ask you how you first heard about it. I understand that the script had actually been sitting around forever. And yeah, eight years. Did people think it was damaged goods, or what was the deal? Well, Bob Wise bought it. I guess somebody must have, maybe it was the Zanuck son, Dick Zanuck, who approached him about it and said, you want to do a musical because we've got the sound of music lying in a bottom drawer in your (laughs) office, and it's been there for eight years. Should we not christen it? (laughs) And that, that, that we did. I wanted to do it because I was going to do a musical on Broadway about Cyrano de Bergerac. And I wanted the feeling of doing a musical. I'd never done one in my life. And the writing wasn't very good. But I thought, no, no, this will be, this will be, you know, nobody will see it. They'll go away. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, halfway through the film, one got the impression that the world was listening. And wow. we know what happened. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, just to follow up a little bit, you, you all went off to Austria for several weeks, I think. I believe only 11 days of that period were you actually in front of cameras what did you spend the rest of the time doing there? Well, eating and drinking, of course. <laughs> Austria has, is, is, is very rich in food and drink. There's a schnapps with everything. <laughs> and traveling around Austria, I got myself into terrible trouble. Uh, had a wonderful time, made a lot of Austrian friends. Did you put on a few pounds when you were doing this? <laughs> I got enormously fat because of all the booze and the, and the Wiener schnitzels. Yeah, I turned up on set when I was needed again, and Robert White said, you look like Orson Welles. <laughs> he said, you fool, we've got to make an entire new costume for you. I couldn't get into my costume. Oh, my God. <laughs> Just awful. Well, now, you did you know Julie Andrews before the... I guess you must have seen her yeah, on I, Broadway. I, I saw uh, the first thing she did. It was a review from London. It was a very cute review, too, she was in. And then, of course, I saw My Fair Lady, mm-hmm. and I thought uh, she was lovely. She was so simple in it, and she stayed so still when she, when she sang. Um, I, I could have danced all night. There was, mm. there, there was a magic about that whole, whole production actually, and uh, so I was thrilled that she was uh, going to be in The Sound of Music. I thought, my well, God. From, from what I recall from a, a number of years ago, I had a chance to interview you, and I think you were saying the things that gave you a little pause there were that you weren't particularly confident in your voice at that point, hmm. and also that 
having the kids on set could be in a way a distraction for the adult actors who wanted to focus and you have to keep getting interrupted, right? Yes, Were those was. two things both actually issues? Well, yes, but I didn't. I mean, I couldn't do anything about it. It existed. I mean, right. the union demands that the children can only work a certain a few hours and they have to be dismissed and while you sit around and wait for them. So they're behaving like the stars. Right. <laughs> it's a bit humiliating. <laughs> but no, we, I had a good time, and I loved Julie. I mean, that's, that's a lifelong friend, and she's, a, she's adorable. And your voice turned out to be very nice. Well, no, most of it is sung by someone else. I did the entrance into it. They produced it very well. Yeah. And, and then the, he took over. I couldn't sustain a long note like Julie. I mean, she was trained, sure. completely trained since she was a kid. I think when she was born, the first <laughs> thing she sang was, I could have danced all night. <laughs> but Edelweiss, at least, did you, was that the most fun part of the thing? Edelweiss, or, you know, the, the singing of that song for you, was that a... Yeah, that, that was all right. I sang most of that, I think, on the camera because it was quicker. It, it, you, you didn't have to sustain long passages. So a few times, I think, over the years, you've jokingly referred to it as S&M or the sound of mucus. And I think some people have the misunderstanding, because I think it's a misunderstanding, that that's because you dislike the film. It's not about the film. It's, it's something else, right? Yes, it was my character, which I found a bit boring and underwritten. And although we had Ernest Lennon, who was a famous yeah. screenwriter and a terrific guy, we, Robert Wise put us together in a room and we tried to work out. And Ernest was so patient and trying to make the character have a little humanity and a little sort of sardonic quality, which was needed but not very well expressed in the, in the script we were working from. That... Uh, because of its danger of being terribly mawkish and sentimental. <laughs> and I, I tried everything in my power to steer away. And Robert Wise later on s said so in public. He said, I, he said, I was very grateful to Chris because he kept me away from going over the edge into real mawkishness and said, which could have been. It was such a fine line. You of know? course. Yeah. And so could you believe when this thing that you had been hesitant to even do became something that people were going to for 12 times at the theater and then it's now lasted for 50 plus years and it's considered one of the great I mean would you ever have fathomed that it would have this no, kind of a and none of us did either Julie didn't but, but we suddenly got smell of it and towards the the end when journalists started to crowd the set because they had just heard the buzz yeah the buzz the buzz had begun <laughs> To come back to The Man Who Would Be King, and just to remind people yes. that you played Rudyard Kipling, this is, again, sort of a, a turning point in your career. Did John Huston, who was the, you know, this great director that you're working with there, not somebody who, I believe, gave a lot of direction, but I think he gave you one piece of direction that you've said you found valuable. Yes. The, what was that? Well, well, first of all, John, like all great directors, and I think Ridley Scott, who I've just worked with, as you know, is, is the same. If they cast you, you right, that's the end of their, their job. They don't, have to, they don't have to direct you because they trust you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been offered the part. <laughs> A lot of directors don't know that or don't understand it, but the great ones do yeah. instinctively. And right. John Huston was certainly one of them. He just took one day... He, <laughs> He put me in front of a camel. I didn't know what was behind me. This kept not, this something was nudging me out of shot, and I was 
passing the camera and missing my close-up. And I kept saying, I said, John, what's going on? I looked around, it was a bloody camel. <laughs> and he'd done that on purpose. He put the camel there just to humiliate oh, me. Oh, my God. And, and finally he said, Chris, we're not changing the camel. He's just like an actor. Animals and actors are the same, and we give them the same privileges. And he went on. Uh, he was he was a diabolical Machiavellian guy. I liked him enormously. That was a great voice impression, also. And, but was there something? Speaking of voice, though, didn't he say something about the musicality of your voice? Oh, it was uh, very difficult because I had to say something short and simple when Carlahan, played by Michael Caine, dies. And I have to react and I'd say something very simple. And I couldn't get it right, and we did it about 20 times, I mean, which John never does. Mm-hmm. He, he's quick, like Ridley. He's quick, and his take two is usually the, the last take. Yeah. But this time I couldn't get it. He finally said, I said, John, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't seem to get the right color. And he said, Chris, just take the music out of your voice. <laughs> What is that now? What did you interpret that to mean? That you were oh, just... Oh, no, I understood exactly what he meant. That I'd been sort of imposing a kind of... Which became sentimental. Yeah. If, if there was a dead reading, it would have been wonderful. So we, I hope we got that right. <laughs> you have worked with a, a lot of directors, probably more than anyone else in the in, who's acting right now, and you've dealt with a lot of eccentric directors, too. I mean... And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I mean, from what I understand, Michael Mann, who directed you in The Insider, in which you were so great as Mike Wallace, he and then David Fincher, who directed you in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, these guys do millions of takes. And then you've got somebody like Terrence Malick, who you did The New World with, who in a different way, I guess, doesn't know what he wants. Uh, So (laughs) is that correct? I mean, these are guys that you're, did you know what you were signing up for with these guys? I didn't. I couldn't believe it when it actually happened. <laughs> and I, <laughs> because I, re, I respect the Michael Mann enormously and, I, and also David Fincher. Mm-hmm. And I didn't mind doing the 20 odd takes. It's because I knew that they weren't the, the type of who didn't know what they were doing. They were, they were looking at other things like lighting, technical. They wanted a perfect marriage and union in each shot. So it wasn't always your fault. It was difficult, however, to keep up a kind of spontaneity because you, once you start going over things like a theater, you, you become stale. Yeah. But it didn't matter because I was so fascinated to work with Michael and David. Yeah. Terrence was another thing I just always felt that because he's such a brilliant man and there were moments of utter beauty in his films. And, and then he overwrites and I thought, God, if only... If only he can hire a marvelous writer who understands him, who can just say in two lines what this whole thing is about. <laughs> but he wants to over over explain things, which comes over, not intentionally, as uh, pretentious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sense is that the film for which you, at long last, finally got your first Oscar <laughs> nomination, 2009's The Last Station, in which you played Leo Tolstoy, that that was particularly enjoyable for you for one reason, which is that you were working with Helen Mirren, and it seems like it's not that often that two heavyweights go toe-to-toe in in a movie like that, and she is sort of, I would think, the female equivalent of Christopher Plummer, just so 
experienced and respected at what she does. What was that one like for you for that reason? Oh, I loved that. And I loved our love scenes together because Helen is, 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 is very seductive. Mm. And it, you have to sort of draw the line. And every now and then, uh, Taylor Hackford would be on the set. And, oh, <laughs> Jesus, there he is again, the husband, the eternal husband. I can't bear it. Uh, no, I think uh, she's a wonderful. I'm a great fan of Helen's, and I'm thrilled that, with her success. Great. So a year after that, after that Oscar nomination number one, was the one that you won the Oscar for. And I will just say for the record, they took their time in recognizing you because at 82 years and 75 days old, you became the... Most senior person ever awarded an acting Oscar. This is for beginners. Let's just remind people you were playing Hal, who I guess was sort of a stand-in for Mike Mills' own father yes, in Beginners. he was. And you've said in a previous interview we did that, quote, it was the most comfortable I think I've ever been on the screen. I felt totally at home, closed quote. Yes, yes. And it wasn't sort of the greatest part I'd ever played or anything like that, but it was. Mike was so easy to work with. I thought oh, there's going to be. I thought in the beginning there's going to be trouble because I'm never going to match up to his dad or whatever he thinks of his dad. I'm not going to get. So I said, Michael, you know, I never met your father, so you've got to help me here. And he said, just be yourself, mm-hmm. which was very brave of him. I thought, mm-hmm. and very sophisticated. Yeah. So I did it as if it was for me, and that relaxed me en- enormously. You seem to like working with Ewan McGregor. You guys had a lot of... Oh, sl- I adore Ewan. Yeah. God, what a wonderful actor he is. He, what a wonderful reactor he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great, a sensitive player. So after all those years, did an Oscar mean something to you? Is that important to you? Well, I was... Yes, I, I was very thrilled, of course, because I often thought that I, people like Edward G. Robinson, for example, great, great actors who have carried films for years and years, They've never had an Never Oscar. got one. Cary Grant. So I thought, my God, of course, I'll never get one. Then it happens to fall into your lap. Well, it was, it was nice. But I thought Charlie Chaplin was, uh, you know, he, he got his honorary Oscar, I think, at the very, can you believe that as well? I mean, the man practically invented <laughs> cinema. <laughs> and, uh, they took a while to get around to him. Oh, my yeah. God. I think he was 80, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and- I thought he was older than me, but I was wrong, I guess. Well, yours was a competitive Oscar. He got an honorary. So yours, you were the oldest competitive one. But let me ask you now about what's got to be one of the weirdest things you've ever been a part of. And that, of course, is all the money in the world. First, let's start with this. Did you personally know Kevin Spacey? Yes. Yeah, indeed. I'm trying to remember. Had you worked together? No, we never worked together. I admire Kevin. He's a terrific actor. And I watched him in many, many of his films. I met him at Stratford in Canada. He came up to see the plays up there. And he has a wonderful classical knowledge, and, and he's a very good classical actor. I've got to go and see his Richard III. I think he's put it on film. I never worked with him. Of course, all this suddenly happened, and by God, I can't discuss that. When you heard what he's been accused of, before you even heard from Ridley, did you ever imagine that they would go to the extent of reshooting stuff that was in the can for him? No, I I didn't think of that at all. I was just sort of devastated. And uh, then suddenly the the phone rang, and it was me. But but Ridley keeps saying that Kevin and I were his first two choices. So it came back into my lap. I didn't realize that at all. 
Did you but, know Ridley before? No, the, I, I'd met him. Yeah. Russell Crowe introduced me. And yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to work with Ridley, and Russell wanted to put me in Gladiator. Yeah. Richard Harris played the part, and, and actually, it was one of the best things Richard Harris ever did. Right. He was marvelous in it. But, I think he died in the middle of it. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And, no, I, I continued to, and then I met Ridley, and then I forgot about it. I thought, oh, the guy's never going to hire me to hell with him. And then finally this happened. <laughs> the phone rang, and I, I said, what a weird offer that Well, is. how did he frame it to you? Well, he just said, you've heard the news. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, we've got to continue and, and reshoot this whole thing. We want you to you for the part. And, and, and because I wanted it, I said, I don't even have to read it, but I'd like to. That's a and, good way of putting it, yeah. Because I'd love to work with you, even if it's just over the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it ended up being, what, nine days, right? Nine days, yeah. Had you uh, ever in your life experienced anything like this, where you basically, they bring back the actors who had done the scenes with Kevin Spacey, which means Michelle Williams, Mark Wahlberg, these are not extras. Oh, no. And you guys have to recreate with your own reinterpretation because it wasn't a matter of, like, hey, let me show you. I guess did he he offered to show you Kevin Spacey's No, he, he wanted me to see what he'd shot so that I could understand the kind of atmosphere that I was to be in. He, But I said, I'd love to, uh, Ridley, but I can't watch Kevin's stuff. Because that's another performance. I don't want it influencing me in any way. I think. And I would say that about anybody, yeah. any actor yeah. that I was replacing. Right. So it's, my, it's now my part. Right. And he totally agreed with that. And we worked out all sorts of different things that maybe Kevin hadn't done. So Michelle and Mark found new things to react to. So, so it wasn't boring at all. It was, now, in terms of crafting this character for yourself, which you had to do again in very short in a very short amount of time, was one of the things that was helpful the fact that apparently you had met J. Paul Getty in the sixties. No, I bumped into him. He, we were all always going to the same sort of parties. This is in London in the sixties and in Europe and in yeah. Rome. Yeah, I'm sure I'd go. I mean, he was over there at the bar, you know. But I didn't know him. Were there things about his? physicality or his way of speaking or anything like that that you drew upon for... The old man. Yeah. Oh, no, I knew nothing about the old man. I thought you meant the grandson. Well, so with the old man, how do you learn how to play this guy? Well, I know how to play old men. Because <laughs> <laughs> I am old. Not, not you. Not, yeah. not you. Cannot be. And also, I've, I've played... There was little bits of... You, you look into character that you don't know very much about because there's very little on J. Paul Getty, and he was a recluse anyway. So you're not going to get it from him or the books. You've got to do it by instinct and follow a very good script by uh, David Scarpa. Who, I mean, that's, that's a very good movie script and terrific for the roles. But I had done King Lear, and there's a bit of King Lear in that, mm -hmm. in, in him, and there's a bit of Time of Athens, which I have not done, but... There's a sort of revenge thing about money in time, and that's terribly relative to Getty's story. What was the hardest part of a nine-day job? I mean, you had a lot of dialogue to learn in a short yes, amount of time. Yes, I, I thought I, I didn't think that it was going to be quite that large a part <laughs> when I said yes. No, I think trying to get the hardest thing was to try to give him a little humanity, because the script was pretty cold although he does talk about the abyss. Uh, 
that money creates and what it does to young people. And there are moments that you can pick out that give you, just for a second, a whiff of humanity, and that's about it, because he closes the door. And I think Ridley liked that, and I did. And that was the hardest thing to do, but a pleasure. So it wasn't a bad hard. Right, it, was right. a, it was a fascinating exercise. Ridley is not a kid either. I think he's 80 now. What did you make of seeing him at work under these stressful circumstances? I, I, I loved working with Ridley, and I loved watching him the way he worked. He had everything ready for me. He was so giving. You know, it's not, wasn't easy, and the first couple of days was tough because you, you, you feel like I felt so terrible that the two kids had to come all the way back and do this whole thing again. I mean, you really had to be good to be forgiven. Yeah. So, and yet he was so, he joked, he, he put me at ease immediately. He's got a wonderful sense of humor, as you know. He has everything ready. All the cameras are in exactly the right places, so you don't have to do takes 14 and 30. Right. It's already and all set up. A lot of coverage. Yes, and it's all at the same time yeah. because he's already cut in his mind like the old days, yeah. like these old school guys. Hitchcock. Hitchcock, for instance. Yeah. He knows exactly where he's going to cut. And boy, does that... That helped enormously. I don't think we ever did more than two takes. Wow. He has said on the Q&A circuit that he had at one point asked you to sing Edelweiss to him. Is that true? <laughs> and that, this is the first time. The first you've heard maybe he was. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to take my name off the screen. <laughs> yeah, now they have to reshoot it again. <laughs> okay, so what did you make of this when a few, I guess a few weeks ago, you got a call that, you were going to need to schlep all the way from Florida to L.A. today because you are going to be tonight a nominee at the Golden Globe Awards for a movie that you were shooting, like, what, a month ago, six weeks ago? Yeah, that was a weird. Just sort of <laughs> practically was, yeah, I was practically getting on the plane, and I'd already been nominated. <laughs> oh, God. But I like the old foreign press, even when they don't nominate me, because it actually it's a, it is a fun evening. Yeah. It's very long, right? but it's fun because you can see your old friends. And unlike the Oscars, you can drink there. Yes, you have another <laughs> drink, which I'll start around two in the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> there you go. So with the last minute or two here, I hope we can just do what we call rapid fire. The first thing that comes to your mind about a few random things. How did you feel when your daughter, Amanda, followed you into the profession? Well, it was marvelous because she was so marvelous. Uh, I think Taste of Honey was the first thing I saw her do. She was just delightful. And then she frightened the hell out of all of us with that, with that extraordinary performance in Agnes of God oh, yeah. as, the, as the crazy young novitiate. Yes. Oh, amazing. That was an amazing, terrifying performance. And I, and I sat there watching it and, and trying to think, if, where, where did it all come from? <laughs> Because it sure wasn't like me or, right. or, her, or her mother, right. Tammy. I mean, it was just this creature up there. It scared the hell out of me. <laughs> Next is, you know, the assumption is that good parts get scarcer as an actor gets older. Have you found that? I don't no, think I so. No, I found the opposite, yeah. actually. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm getting more employed than I did when in my 70s. Wow. Yeah. Do you feel that you continue to get better with the passage of time, or does it just sort of plateau at a certain point? No, I haven't. I've, I'm going back to the stage because I've, I've written something Shakespearean 
for the, uh, the symphony orchestra and myself. So I speak the words and, and all the music from composers who were inspired by Shakespeare. Wow. Which is a fascinating yeah. kind of, because you, the numbers of composers is astounding Amazing. who use Shakespeare as their god. Yeah. From Beethoven on. I mean, they're all, so it's an interesting evening, and I, that'll be new it's and exciting. So, so nothing has stayed on a level. We hope it either sinks <laughs> desperately or... It'll soar, hopefully. Last two. Do you have any professional regrets? Did you ever turn down a role that in hindsight you wish you had taken or, or anything like no, that? No, the only regret is that because Peter O'Toole, whom I love very much still, even though he's gone, went off to, to do Lawrence of Arabia, and he was supposed to do the play Beckett by Jean Nui at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre that I was a member of. And so he went off to do the movie, and they put me in his role, a wonderful role of King Henry II. And I won the Best Actor of the Year in England and it was everything. So I owe that to Peter. Then they made the movie. Yes, and, and <laughs> yes that's right. They made the movie and the sons of bitches <laughs> didn't, didn't ask me to be in it. He came back for his yeah. role. And, and yeah. Richard, yes, and Richard Burton, who was a very good Beckett. Yes. Uh, it would have been fun to have done that. Yes. Last question. You recently turned... 88. Happy birthday. Thank you very much. What keeps you working at this point? Is there any part of you that is tempted to just sleep in or play golf or rest on your laurels a little bit? Why keep pushing yourself? Oh, no, because I love this profession. I, I really do. It has never been anything but great fun to me. Never. Even the, even the worst, most boring, awful <laughs> circumstances. Actually, that's even funnier if you, if you, if you learn to <laughs> laugh at those moments. You can really build up a good laugh for the whole of your life. Right, right, right. Well, thank you so much. It's always been a treat watching your work, and to get to speak to you is is the best. So thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.